Digital editor of Film Comet. Today I'm joined by Margaret Barton Fumo. Um, I've been contributing to Film Comet since 2005, and I have recently edited a collection of interviews with the director Paul Verhoeven. Ashley Clark, um, curator and freelance critic for publications including Film Comet, The Guardian, Vice, Sight and Sound, um, and author of the book Facing Blackness uh, about Spike Lee's Bamboozled, which came out this year. Uh, and I'm Nick Pinkerton, roving film critic, appearing in Sight and Sound, Art Forum, Film Comment, and Reverse Shot, No Book. So today we're going to be discussing the films of Douglas Sirk and get into the subject of representation. Sirk is best known for his stylized 50s melodramas or weepies, and he's commonly understood as someone who employed uh, Brechtian distanciation to create a dual audience. You know, one who was in on the joke and another uh, who just took his films at face value and sort of became the joke. Do you understand him as an ironist or someone who's more of a straightforward melodramatician? My answer would be, why does it have to be an either or proposition? Um, I think there are films in which let's you know say for a moment that there are two douglas cirques and certainly that would be in keeping thematically with the films that there's a naive american douglas cirque and there's a ironic european douglas cirque i think the two in some of the best work coexist and commingle with uh, one another i think there are certain films in which one might be dominant but that a sort of sophisticated cirque or a uh, stupid hack cirque that one has to be separated from the other and maybe that's a, a poor dichotomy to, to lay out but I, I don't know that the naive cirque and the ironist cirque need to be pulled apart uh, like you know it's a, it's a Siamese twin that uh, can't be separated without danger to one or both yeah I mean I'd, I'd concur with Nick on that um, the first Cirque film that I watched was um, Imitation of Life and the most recent and I think both sides of that those characteristics are at play um, you can admire the the distance and the you know the the framing and it's you know it seems very hands-off and ironic and then without warning something can come and punch you in the gut which is, you know, which you're least expecting. And I think that that kind of runs across a lot of his work. Yeah, I don't I don't think it should be such an issue as people tend to bring up sometimes. I mean, I think it's clear and obvious at this point that Cirque had the knowledge and sort of the chops to, you know, be a critical filmmaker. But um, whether he made an effort to do that or not all the time is you know, not certain. Um, I think it's common, though, to attribute that more in the style of the filmmaking than the content. Part of the reason is because he didn't write his films, although he had a say in them, and just the overt, you know, stylization, which sort of jump jumps out at people. And I would uh, briefly mention last night I was uh, picking through uh, John Halliday's uh, collection of interviews with Cirque, uh, Cirque on Cirque, uh, from Faber and Faber, and I ran across 
uh, something that he says about Othello, which I think doubles as a very good uh, descriptor of uh, some of his best work, where he describes Othello as a character who's operating at a double level, but the levels are fused, and in something like Imitation of Life, I mean, this is, I think, the pinnacle of Cirque's art and one of the most sort of perfect summations that any filmmaker has ever had. It's almost like a sallow level perfect note <laughs> to go out on. Uh, though I don't know if it was intended as such. Uh, but you even have, you know, the, the movie concludes with a funeral that's essentially been stage directed by Juanita Moore. Um, I would also briefly toss in something uh, that is always stuck in my craw, said by a guy who learned an enormous amount from uh, Douglas Sirk, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender, uh, when talking about Brecht uh, in an interview, said uh, that you know he believed that he went further than the sort of ironist approach of Brecht. Says I let the audience feel and think, and I think that that is so central to that like Sirkian paradox is you have to get beyond that binary and realize you know it's not one or the other there is that kind of one manic scene where the boyfriend discovers that Sarah Jane is black has a black mother and that kind of bizarre kind of marimba thudding music <laughs> <laughs> yes. comes in and, and that's the one moment in the film um, that kind of stands out to me as a, as a loss of control and a kind of but then again, I don't know. I, it, it provoked such a strange set of feelings in me that I was expecting for that to be an incredibly powerful moment, and I ended up laughing for the, the one time in the movie. It's well, like it was taken from West Side Story. Incredibly strange <laughs> piece <laughs> of the style of it. It's been a while since I've seen it, but there are many, many instances of what I think Tony Pippolo wrote uh, writing about uh, the series called Delirium uh, mm -hmm. throughout yeah. Cirque. I think in particular of... Uh, scene in uh, Written on the Wind where Robert Stack is uh, having a meltdown <laughs> in a pharmacy and you see a <laughs> low angle shot with all these banners that just say drugs and then he stumbles outside and there's this like Moppet being jerked to and fro <laughs> in a sort of suggestive manner on a uh, like 25 cent hobby horse out front. <laughs> there are definitely moments uh, when one is jarred in ways that are strange and difficult to account for but that's how but that is how i i love that scene too and it always sticks out to me too because all this horrible stuff can be swirling around one person but life goes on well it's a it's a it's a approaching bathos at yeah time. like <laughs> uh, the, the sort of ridiculous the ridiculousness of uh this this suffering and it's touching and it's a little funny at the yeah. same time yeah. Think of Julianne Moore's character in, in Magnolia as an example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of <laughs> relentless over-the-topness. There's another interview with Cirque that is available to read on the Film Common website, mm. which is, I think, from 1978. Yes. Um, in which he says a few times he talks about certain readings of his films that he didn't notice until Holiday brought it up in his interviews. Mm. And that scene is one of them. Um, I think Holiday or the film comment interviewer um, suggested that the position of the child was um, purposeful because Stack's character found out that he's impotent. Yeah. 
and then he sort of stumbles outside. There's a little kid, you know, like on the <laughs> just swinging around, and and Stack's eyes bulge out, and and uh, Cirque says, "Oh well, um, I guess so. No, maybe." <laughs> and that was his response to several um, prompts about different scenes that that he he suggested that he hadn't thought of it before. He hadn't, I think, important important to phrase it as hadn't intended it. I would say uh, a point worth making as we're talking about, you know, Cirque speaking for himself is also that it's been my observation from having read a number of different interviews that there are as many Douglas Cirques as there are interviewers who mm. come to Logano, uh, which is to say he was a very, very canny, intelligent, foxy guy who knew how to take a interview in the direction or how to talk on the level with the person who was speaking to him. So depending on what the particular agenda being pressed by uh, the interview of the day was, you could get very different answers about the same films maybe Cirque is a little smarter than most of us and we can try to corner him but the films and the intellect behind them is a little larger than any single reading or any cul-de-sac that we might want to put him in. Well speaking of cul-de-sacs would you <laughs> guys say that his approach to you know his non quote-unquote women's pictures uh, was fundamentally different because all of his films were made inside of a studio system. You know, there's at least one film that had a much happier ending tacked on to it. Um, so there are certain genre conventions that you feel like maybe couldn't be shaken entirely. So I'm thinking of something, you know, like action scenes and like Captain Lightfoot or his lone Western, Taza, the son of Cochise. What struck me, uh, and I didn't see Taza this time around, but I've seen it rather recently, and I rewatched Tarnish Angels. Mm -hmm. He's not a bad director of action. No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, that's not something we necessarily remember him as, but like the rounding the pylon scenes in Tarnished Angels, they're very, very well handled. They're very tense. They're very exciting, and and I think it, it's notable that in, in the war scenes, he's not afraid to like mow people down. He doesn't really hold back on, on the brutality of of people just you know dropping like flies in in battle scenes, which I think is sometimes um, avoided in other films. I mean, uh, Taza in particular has all these <laughs> these sort of like jump scares with arrows, where someone will be talking and then suddenly they're just impaled. <laughs> by an arrow, and that <laughs> may have had something to do with the 3D, but it's brutal. But it's also done in a tasteful, as tasteful as you can be, I think, in, in those types of scenes. Because really he's been typecast with kind of the four four or five major melodramas that he's done. Mm. I'm kind of interested to what other, other people think on how, how that came to be and what kind of critical waves you know brought that into being. Um, a Time to Love and A Time to Die is kind of a hybrid Yes. You know, it's very much a war film, but the the plot is centered on this romance, you know, this epic romance, but I still would not call it a woman's picture because um, the film follows, what's his name? The male John actor. Gavin. Yeah. 
it follows Gavin from the beginning to the end. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he's really the main character. It's more of his story. I think uh, a time to love and a time to die is a great one to talk about. Also, just as an illustration of the fact that you have very different approaches depending on the material, and in the case of this film, uh, as you know, I'm sure everybody in this room is well aware, Cirque's adapting a Remarque novel, yes, but also in the last reel, essentially filming the death of his own son in uh, on the Eastern Front, uh, his own uh, son, uh, Klaus Cirque, uh, who, son from a first marriage, who uh, was kept away from him by his first wife and was a child actor in Nazi propaganda films and who died in 1944 on the Eastern Front. And you can't tell me that while directing this, Douglas Sirk is not feeling <laughs> something himself, not trying to impress feelings upon a viewer. Uh, this is as personal and as wrenching as filmmaking gets so i mean to think that he's like leaning back in his director's chair ruffling his ascot going mm-hmm, those stupid housewives will <laughs> weep their eyes out about this i mean i find that very difficult to believe well and especially going off of this idea that it is a personal film and i i totally agree with you that film and Mystery Submarine really don't fall inside the typical classical Hollywood characterization of good Germans versus bad Germans. You see Germans, all types of Germans, suffering. And it's not. there's no clear moral dividing line. Those films are both anomalies in that sense. Well, I mean, Cirque left Germany really very late for someone who was fundamentally opposed to what was happening in Germany and moreover who had a Jewish second wife Mm -hmm. uh, in part because of his attachment to his son and I think a hope that he might be able to bridge the gap there eventually and I, I can only imagine that that would lead to a fundamentally different understanding of things to have been you know, to only have gotten out really at the last possible moment, I think 1938 or so, and, and to be of a certain age as well, to be able to yeah. be mature enough to yeah, he's to 40, refl- yeah, something like to this. reflect on that and bring an entire <laughs> adult life's experience to that work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, a lot of the reading I've done around him suggests that he was very much a loner type figure, and you see that sense of observance and and distance, which doesn't necessarily mean coldness by any stretch, but e- even in the, the, the kind of more action-y stuff that we talked about before, you kind of, I definitely sense a, 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 a remove and a thoughtfulness that perhaps comes from his own experiences. Mm. Uh, talking about the relationship between the, like, Ross Hunter melodramas and the stuff in the experiments in other genres, or even the sort of Americana films uh, that he made in the early 50s, I would say the one thing that really hit me right between the eyes this time, and particularly while watching uh, Imitation of Life, which again I'll call like a great summation, is how consistently the theme of imposture runs through Mm. just about everything. Um, That is to say, 
the face and the mask, the face becoming the mask. He constantly stop acting, he's repeating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a film about, yeah, as you say, pretending to be things at, at absolutely every level. But so is, you know, something like Captain Lightfoot with these sort of triple agent, triple crosses. <laughs> uh, so is A Scandal in Paris, uh, where you have uh, an absolute scoundrel uh, becoming the, like, police chief of Paris. Uh, it may be a bit of a stretcher, and I know he's not selecting his material, but one way or another, you do find a really, really a through line that goes through all of this different material and something that like I had never thought about before uh, but which occurred to me while uh, picking through Cirque on Cirque is in, in his uh, years in uh, Germany he was very instrumental in the career of this uh, actress Zara Leander and uh, the only thing that I know Zara Leander from is uh, The Mother and the Whore where uh uh, Leod and uh, his friend uh, Jacques Renard are like sitting around uh, in his bedroom. His friend uh, brings out a uh, Zara Leander uh, record and is talking about it and says, uh, Zara Leander, she was the Nazis' attempt to replace Dietrich. And, and like all imitations, she's better than the original. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a very, a very Cirkian uh, concept uh, showing up in the most unlikely of places. Yeah. <laughs> You know, a line, a line that really struck me in Imitation of Life. I mean, I was, I was sitting there watching it thinking, oh, we don't get to see any of Annie's interior life. And, you know, what do I feel about that? And then there's that amazing exchange where Annie says to, to Miss Laura, you know, I've got loads of friends in the church and, and, and colleagues at the lodge. And, she, and, and Miss Laura says, oh, I, d- I didn't know. And, and <laughs> Annie says, you never asked. Yeah. <laughs> you know. After 20 years. <laughs> yeah, of, that quote, of friendship. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that line is so devastating. And, yeah. and it kind of has its, it repeats with the final sequence, which is obviously where, you know, we, we're going to talk about framing, I guess, and how, how faces and close-ups are so important. Mm. And how suddenly you just see all these faces of her friends and her colleagues in the church. And it becomes overwhelming, just kind mm-hmm. of close-up after close-up. And you realize what's been missing. Yeah. Well, it's like the nicest moment of her life as we see it through the film. Like, it's like this big celebration of this woman who, you know. And it's not an oversight from Cirque. It's not like, oh, I don't care about these people. It's so central to the fabric of the film that we're not clued into her inner life. Yeah. And it is, I think, I've always always understood it as sort of like this moment. It's sort of a great metaphor for how... um, black characters are treated in Hollywood film in general, where it's sort of like no one ever asks and you don't see it until, you know, there's a wedding or a funeral or or a dance hall scene and there are these acceptable ways to get this black character in, sort of fitted into this or larger white narrative. police chief or something. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can be critical about certain things of the movie. I think it was interesting that 1959, same year as Shadows, and I, I found... All, thereabouts and I found out recently that Leila Goldoni I'd always assumed she was biracial but isn't yeah uh, and and um the ca- you know the the actress who performs the, the role of Sarah Jane isn't either and I th- you know th- there are kind of those meta things to be to be critical of but I didn't find anything overly troubling about the representation of um Juanita Moore's character mm. or, or Mahalia Jackson for that <coughs> matter I, I, w- I will say as as one to whom like 
classical Hollywood movie making is incredibly, incredibly important. Mm -hmm. There is always a moment when somebody, not even just non-white, but non-Anglo-Saxon, shows up in a movie of what we'll generally call the Golden Age period, where you kind of hold your breath because, you know, eh, something kind of tetchy is about to happen. Something kind of off-putting is about to happen. And I had exactly this moment when watching uh, Cirque's uh, Sleep My Love uh, thriller from 1947, where uh, Don Amici, or rather um, Robert Cummings, spirits Claudette Colbert to a friend's wedding, and the wedding turns out to be down in Chinatown, and everybody at the wedding's uh, Chinese. And you brace yourself for something kind of messed up to happen, and nothing does <laughs> at all. It's just a wedding that's full of Chinese people. And I don't, I mean, I can only say from what I've seen, and I've not seen everything, Douglas Sirk seems to have been a pretty sophisticated dude for mm -hmm. his day. And I don't, I'm, it's actually an incredibly moving scene. Claudette Colbert winds up getting based on Chinese liquor and <laughs> giving a toast to all of humanity. Charming in the extreme. Um, I'd like to know what you guys think about the difference between the first imitation of life and the second, and that the second one omits the um, Aunt Jemima of the first film. The white character exploits the black character for her syrup recipe. She becomes Aunt Delilah, who's clearly Aunt Jemima, and it's just a very uncomfortable, unsettling image of a mammy. And in Cirque's version, um, the white character is rather an actress who climbs to fame. Who's maybe going to do a movie with Pellucci, <laughs> <laughs> which always makes me laugh. It's like, she's going to be stripped naked and shoved into a fountain or something. One simple way of looking at that omission is to sort of, you know, you want to give Cirque a point for taking it out. Um, on the other hand, it also, I think, plays into his fascination with imposters and actors and it also facilitates Lana Turner's shine in mm. that role and, and ends up highlighting her even more, I think. Because there still is, you know, a mammy issue in the second film. Oh, big yeah. time, yeah. You know, it's not. The f it's such a strange claustrophobic film mm. um, wh where the, the allegiances are, are not, not necessarily spelled out um, in a way that they are. Allegiances and motivations are not. Um, I was just fascinated by the her, by the, the the slow decline, the illness, and the way that it's never really spoken about what what it is she's suffering from, and I, I, it made me think of Safe. It made me think of Cat mm. Carroll, with the kind of ailment that is very visible to to people, but never really diagnosed, and the extent to which that is some kind of riff on societal pressure and prejudice and discrimination of the age kind of saying something fairly powerfully without coming out and saying it. And the failure of the sort of love story between the two women, which starts out, you know, kind of tenderly, and then the, the, the their friendship, you know, and then it just sort of disintegrates as, as uh, Lana Turner rises in her fame. I wouldn't say it disintegrates so much as as soon as she is able to hold herself above this person who she was at one point uh, 
to a certain extent on a level with, she mm -hmm. avails herself of that opportunity, perhaps unknowingly. And uh, to speak to the point about the uh, change between the stall and the Cirque versions, I would say that the, the scene that Ashley cited, the why well, you never asked scene, is in some ways that crime of omission or indifference is more painful than a direct betrayal. Uh, it's, you know, road to hell paved with the best of intentions. It's right there at the start of the movie when, when Lana Turner's character says, oh, people are going to think you're my maid. When in fact she's doing nothing to disprove that <laughs> that that setup, you know, she's welcomed into our house and assumes those as a matter of course, and it's kind of troubling from that from that point of view as well. Ju just the way that roles are very easily slipped into, and and what what does it take to to break out of those? She is her maid. I mean, absolutely. You know, <laughs> she doesn't have a day job of you know something else. Like she is her her maid. Well, Nick, you've written before about Taza, son of Cochise, for us in terms of race and representation and sort of the, you know, to sort of change topics and take it back more to the non- Well, it's not changing topics at all because well. Taza seems to me very close in some respects oh to yeah. imitation of life. Well, similar. Uh, where you have Rog Hudson doing his level best in the role of Taza to, uh, you know, create understanding between uh, between the Apaches after the passing of Cochise and uh, the white man uh, and uh, the like Indian station agent uh, and putting on the uh, putting on the regalia of the Indian policeman uh, doing absolutely everything that is asked of him to be a good Indian and where do we find ourselves in the last reel? The total, <laughs> like, apocalyptic slaughter <laughs> with some, like, very arbitrary, false-bottomed happy ending where everybody, all the main characters get together in the frame and go, well, okay, that's over. I think we've got this taken care of now. <laughs> but <laughs> it hardly erases the fact that you've just seen people getting spears chucked through them. <laughs> the genocide bit, just sort of like, hey! <laughs> well, Taza, it looks like everything's okay now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the drama of it all, and you know the performative aspect of it, the style, all the the bronzer and the brown face, it it stands in like a stark opposition to all of the scenes where you see actual Native Americans in the background, and it happens a lot, but. They're just standing there. They're propped up like like bowling pins, really. They're always facing the audience. <laughs> they're not, you know, looking at each other, and they're just standing their arms straight to the side. And um, it's very obvious that they aren't actors. It's interesting that they're included in the film, but the way in which they're just sort of standing there, projecting the kind of strong, silent stereotype. Um, is interesting. It's interesting that they are the so-called realist thing about the film, mm -hmm. and it stands out the most. Mm -hmm. It's the thing that you notice the most. Yeah. It's, al it's almost a form of opposition, mm -hmm. but also not. Like it's, it's, that w it's that weird thing where it's both at the same time. But um, what I was going to bring up is that the sort of crucial point that you made when writing about it for us previously 
was that, you know, Rock Hudson in that role is that um, when casting whites in non-white parts has been off limits, Hollywood has gone and made more white people roles and now wi- and mm-hmm. now gives a wide berth to exoticism of all stripes, save for occasional Caucasian-studded orient- orientalist offerings like Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, and Exodus, Gods and Kings. So given the current Oscar so white discussions happening now, it would seem that, you know, can we sort of talk about not necessarily whose fault it is, but maybe what, like, can we can we dig into this? Because I, th- I think you really hit on something. In fact. Well, yeah, I mean, Hollywood is not going to produce, like, a Mr. Moto movie <laughs> if they... Or if they have to, like, cast an Asian guy as Mr. Moto, like, <laughs> back when you could have, like, Peter Lorre play yeah. whatever you needed, then that was <laughs> totally fine. Like, yeah, we'll give it to or Peter Lorre. Or Or Anthony <laughs> Quinn. Yeah, exactly. Like, when you had when you had some sort of margin walker. Or, or, or um, Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel. <laughs> yeah. um, Any old ball guy will do. <laughs> um... I, as to who to attribute the fault for hashtag Oscars so white, <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> the fucking man. <laughs> well, even in uh, A Time to Love and A Time to Die, you have some very, very American people playing Germans. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and you have probably the most jarring actual, like, Brechtian distancing device in all of Cirque when Klaus Kinski shows up. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to briefly try to get your head around the fact that Klaus Kinski and Douglas Sirk existed in the same world <laughs> and were on the same set, which still I can't do. Yeah. <laughs> Some years before Jesus Christ, the world tour, <laughs> which I recommend listeners ch- uh, check out on YouTube. <laughs> what, do you, what do you guys think about, you know, what I mentioned earlier about the, the casting of, the Sarah Jane character and Leila Goldoni in, in, in Shadows uh, as biracial people when, of course, you know, just it was 59, you know, it wasn't 1910. What do you guys think about that, that casting? And, and can you see past that to, to get find a, a greater emotional truth in the, the film? Or does it cause a problem for you guys? I mean, for me, the sort of casting against racial type... I think you have to roll with it uh, up to a certain point. Um, you don't have to, of course. Uh, it's however you feel. And it's not just uh, in Imitation of Life or Taza. There's also the Korean War movie uh, Battle Hymn, mm-hmm. which uh, has a sort of, I forget the name of the actress, a ambiguously Eurasian actress who may or may not have been intentionally exoticizing herself. Plug in me saying her name because I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Just a random different voice. (laughs) (laughs) I'll read it. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I, I find that I acclimate myself to it with films of a certain period. However, if you're dealing with 
say a cloud atlas or something like that <laughs> in 2013 <laughs> and uh, tom hanks uh, speaking in his weird is that the space Tom-Crew hillbilly patois <laughs> i missed <laughs> that one i did not see oh that i saw that at, i actually saw that at a press screening and i kept laughing and there were obviously you were people. forcibly ejected no there were people atlas. no there were people who worked for the studio and they were like they're like kind of glaring at me but then hey, then they came over <laughs> then they came over they're like okay <laughs> forget it which i mean i suppose the underlying message of cloud atlas is that of the brotherhood of man and you can make a cogent argument that that playing against racial type did in some weird way maybe expand some minds What's, of course, problematic about it, to use my most favorite word, (laughs) hashtag hashtag problematic, is it pretty much always went in one direction. It's not like classic Hollywood's full of Harry Belafonte putting on white face. It's (laughs) simply not. Well, people always wheel up white chicks, don't they? Oh, yes. (laughs) What are you you getting so upset about? What about white chicks? You have white chicks, don't you? you? Um, but can I tell can I tell a quick funny story? Oh, when please. I was an under when I was an undergrad, um, we had this final project in a fi- in a film class where we watched White Chicks, and this guy and this is University of Iowa, this uh, very nice fella, white fella. Uh, <laughs> um, he came up he had come up with a final project, and he's like, well, you know, I don't like it, and so he's like, okay, so and the teacher is like, well, you should present this to the class, and he came up with a new one, which was instead of white chicks, it's black dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and I and he was like, it's these two white girls who you fill in the blank. I won't, conti- I won't. And everyone was just sort of like, no, <laughs> don't. And he's like, oh, okay. So I and it was like seeing it aloud made him realize why it was a terrible idea, and he should just write a paper instead. So it's good to talk these things out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I kind of, kind in a way, I'd kind of love to have seen it. <laughs> so we'd have been talking about that today. <laughs> After, after his retrospective at Lincoln Center. Yeah, I was going to say, what famous filmmaker? That, that anecdote has to end with, and his name was? <laughs> Brett Ratner. <laughs> well, reading about the, the early days of theatrical minstrelsy, you know, yeah. Eric Lott, in his book Love and Theft, talks about how the idea of, you know, blacking up and, mi- you know, mimicking supposedly an authentic version of black dialect was actually a form of an attempt at transracial working class unity, um, mm. which is a, a, a leap, you know, it's certainly <laughs> a leap, but it's interesting to, to read these kind of ideas behind, and I think it alludes to what you were saying, well, you know, the brotherhood of man type deal. Yeah, you know, I mean, hang on, we're all, we're all human here, you know. I think, I think one thing that sometimes is forgotten about is that the blacking up was part of a whole vaudeville sort of minstrelry tradition, which included so-called Dutch acts where, you know, people did their broadest German accents. That's what Groucho Marx uh, you know, came up doing. And Chico is like the one vestigial uh, reminiscence of that in the, like, Marx Brothers is doing his wop shtick. Yeah. And you had your Irish acts and you had, you know, you can make a cogent argument that at one point this was part of the whole sort of melting pot cauldron and people from vastly different backgrounds trying to acclimate themselves to one another by mercilessly mocking one another, and there is some merit in that. Uh, Obviously, kind of the backdrop of actual legislation and mm-hmm. social <laughs> conditions 
undercuts that to an extent, but I think it's really interesting to look at it from that angle. Mm -hmm. yeah. Kind of instead of just condemning, which is not a short, it's not a shortcut to a good discussion. I think to, but uh, you know, with with stuff like imitation of life, that, that's kind of wh why I brought it up. I'm just kind of interested to how people respond to it. Yeah, no, because again, I mean, um, when we were preparing for this, a film that you had mentioned, Ashley, was uh, Michael Romer's Nothing But a Man, yeah. which is totally fascinating and. It's, you know, this, uh, well, I guess you could, you can explain the sort of the project behind it or I cause it, it was sort of this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a film by Michael Roma and Andrew Young. Uh, Michael Roma is a, a Jewish guy who escaped, uh, on the kinder transports and used his experience, uh, of, of persecution and being alienated from his family to kind of empathize with the, uh, the, the Jim Crow struggle for African-Americans. And he made this kind of incredible neorealist docudrama um, which was shot in Jersey which was doubling for Alabama because it was too dangerous to shoot down there and I think the, the parallel with Cirque is obviously um, someone f obviously the, the, the German aspect you know Cirque and emigre and also coming to an outsider in many ways coming to these kind of very American problems and and how they deal with those. And I just thought there was a, an interesting parallel between the two filmmakers. Yeah. Well, there's also the one and only Edgar G. Ulmer, mm. who came over here and made Moon Over Harlem, which I'm bringing up, but I have not seen. I was wondering <laughs> if you guys had seen Moon a Over Harlem. A long time ago. long time yeah. ago. Yeah. I mean, that's, as far as I know, though, it's an instance of a film that's entirely black cast. You know, we have these films that has that have a, a black character mm -hmm. in them, or a tragic mulatto in them, or someone in t bronzer in it, and then we have the white-directed black cast films. There aren't many of them. Um, the musical with Lena Horne. Stormy Weather, or Cabin in the Sky. Yeah, so those are, I don't know, two different sides of the coin. Yeah, I think it's that idea of not not needing to mediate the experience like nothing but a man was was Malcolm X's favorite film yeah. you know didn't matter that it was a white director um, because it gives absolute agency to Ivan the character played by Ivan Dixon and his paramour played by Abby Lincoln and it's a very kind of I think that that, that realist aesthetic when I wrote about it I talked about the framing the claustrophobia the just the kind of relentless close-ups and you've yeah. got no breathing space whatsoever um, so yeah, I I think it's just a fantastic film, and it can be considered a melodrama because of what happens in it. Yeah. But it has some of the most low key, naturalistic acting <laughs> that you'll ever see in any kind of a a melodrama. For a low budget production, it's so remarkably refined. It's doing something that really any other you know like even like shadows the way that looks it, d it it's really trying to be something incredibly articulate and it is yeah i mean it looks it looks rough and ready but pristine at the same time it's not yeah. this kind of wild camera work all over the place and shooting on the run it's not like guerrilla filmmaking yeah it's very very well thought through and very clearly blocked and and framed and there's these kind of incredible ellipses in it as well where you know kind of weddings and funerals will be cut out, you know, so people will go into a church and this this reminds me of um, the, the the love scenes and the marriage scene in Fear Eats the Soul too, mm. where somewhat, you know, people, characters will walk into a church and there'll be a cut and then they'll come out and they're married. 
and it just trusts that the viewer will cotton onto what's happening and it doesn't waste doesn't waste time it's it's not a long film you feel very nervous watching it too because there's always the threat of violence yes mm-hmm. and i was actually surprised in a way that the film did not end with a lynching because the uh, there's a mention of it in sort of in the middle of the film of, of some guy in town ago. who yeah. was a trouble man and he was lynched and then the main character starts to go through the motions of becoming you know a troubling person in town and the film could have obviously gone there, and it doesn't. And I found that striking, actually, and in a way not um, patronizing mm-hmm. in a way yeah. that other films that are about race will, you know, throw something like that. That it doesn't, it doesn't need some catastrophic, cataclysmic event to to make you Be sit profound. back and say, "Oh my God, racism is terrible." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it and it's real here, you know. Yeah, it's about the ambient racism of, of Jim Crow era America in the same way that you know it, Selma Ava DuVernay's film begins with that one scene of Annie Lee Cooper um, Oprah Winfrey's character being denied the the right to register to vote and then the film goes on to be something a bit more epic the whole of nothing but a man is it seems like those these kind of t- minor microaggressions and, and every you know every time a character addresses him they call him boy it's boy boy mm-hmm. you know and it really it's it's very restrained, and I think that's uh, in a large part from from where it draws such power. Well, we've gone a lot of places, so now I think we'll end. Um, and I would love it if, uh, in the spirit of our long running last ten films, I would like to ask each one of you for just one movie you've seen recently that you really liked. I'll start off by saying that when we first discussed the topic of this um, podcast, I thought for some reason that it was mainly going to be about cinematography. Mm. So I had this one film on my mind that I happened to see recently, and it is Tentacles, <laughs> which is, it was a canon film. Um, it is a hack job of Jaws, I think, with a killer, <laughs> it's about a killer octopus. The title might have <laughs> given that one away. <laughs> Within this film, though, there is a long take in it that's about three minutes long and it just um i hate to use this word but it was breathtaking (laughs) (laughs) and um perhaps elevated the film for me in a way it's directed by um i forget his name he's a greek name but he was a ceo of canon films and he was known as a a big hack (laughs) but it has a very european feel to it the music is fantastic and the cinematography is very interesting and it has Walter Houston and uh, Shelley Winters playing siblings who are also Walter? roommates. Wait, John Houston. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting the Houstons mixed up. Uh, that would be the exhumed corpse of <laughs> Walter <laughs> if he's in a canon film. I wouldn't put it past <laughs> this movie. Yeah. But moving on. Uh, I saw a very difficult and thought provoking film the other day um, called Black Dudes. No. <laughs> um, no f- for many years I kind of put off I, I had Lost Highway on DVD and for some reason I'd never watched it but I, I watched it for the first time the other day and it just kind of blew me away it's particularly the, the Robert Loggia scene oh god yes when <laughs> like porno Pete <laughs> give you a boner <laughs> or, or the, the, he, you need to get a driving yeah, manual <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the tailgating scene where he just kind of explodes with rage um 
in the middle of the highway. But um, very mathematically, where he's like, you need to give. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the greatest piece of uh, like angry acting I've ever seen. Yes. Um, and I thought it was, yeah, great. I mean, I, th- I don't know why, but I'd seen it. You know, I, s- I think sometimes when you're looking for c- critical advice, and uh, too many times I think I'd seen it dismissed as yeah. kind of a bit wanky, kind of low-key Lynch, nowhere near Blue Velvet or Mulholland Drive, and maybe osmotically I'd just taken that in, but I'm glad I finally picked it off the shelf and, and watched it, because I thought it was fantastic, but incredibly unsettling sound design in particular. It's like his loudest film, yeah, I feel. Yeah, it's terrifying from beginning to end. Well, the, the Marilyn Manson involvement did kind of cheap it, <laughs> cheapen it a little bit and may uh, have swayed and some uh, people. I, and, and again, to on the subject of race, um, uh, Richard Pryor's cameo isn't great. <laughs> it's, kind of a weird, it's kind of an even worse version of the paint store guys in Blue Velvet. But Double Ed. Yeah, they're cold. <laughs> yes. I, like, I like double. A. I'm a big fan I of double. A. I like <laughs> double. <A>. <laughs> <laughs> if that makes I'm me a race traitor, <laughs> whoa, whoa. So, so be it. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm not making fun of double Ed, However, <laughs> I think it's a great swan song <laughs> for Richard Pryor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nick, what about you? <laughs> uh, well, the two things I wanted to see I've not gotten to yet, which are. are, are 13 hours and dirty grandpa um <laughs> oh oh he i saw i saw a uh, snapchat of somebody who went to see it and um i don't why am i doing this why i'm just like interrupting making everything no race. please but i want to hear about this, this snapchat no, from this someone is, who saw this, dirty grandpa th- there's a scene where they're doing karaoke dirty grandpa is doing karaoke uh-huh. and it's a rap song I and he's like he's like can i say it and these black people in the crowd are like do it do it and he's and he says and it. And then the credits roll. No, the movie <laughs> keeps going. <laughs> Twist. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And it's like. Is he just that for the whole film? <laughs> that, that one scene. <laughs> a karaoke bar. Yeah. Uh, that's mo- I think that's maybe more of a um, Harmony Corinne sort of a thing. Mm. That would be. I would watch that. <laughs> Other, otherwise, literally all I've watched over the last week has been season four of Gilmore Girls and the short films of Gabrielle Brontes, oh. uh, which will soon be playing right here at the Film Society of Lincoln <laughs> Center. And I really, really am a true believer in this dude. They're just lush, thorny, very inappropriate uh, movies. And I couldn't be fonder of particularly... Uh, on We On We and Taprabana and a uh, short history of mutual appreciation. That's a very exciting body mm-hmm. of work. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing how people respond to them. Good. And then uh, mine, and we can end, we can all go home. <laughs> um, I finally, another movie that I had put off seeing for years for no good reason. The Wicker Man. Ooh. I finally saw it after oh reading. Is it, is it Nicolas Cage great in it? Oh no 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 I'm no! The kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, actually, all I could think of watching it was like, why would you think remaking it is a good idea? Because you're never gonna do as good of a job. Like it's just Christopher Lee's hairpiece. Yes. When they're by the sea and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, <laughs> like it's gonna come alive and eat. It's, him. it's like a like a Zucker Brothers gag. It just grows <laughs> in every shot. Yes, I love the, the naked woman r- writhing oh, and that yeah. so Brit eerie. Rod Stewart's ex girlfriend, which is oh. which is and, and it's, it's a good song too. I remember it's a good song. Rightly. <laughs> 
That's an ass double. That's an ass double. Okay. And on that note, <laughs> <laughs> well, what a, parting such sweet sorrow. Um, well, thank you all for coming. See you at the movies. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs>